This podcast is brought to you by Toyota of Paris. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring this podcast. If you guys have any car needs, go check out Toyota. They're an awesome group of people. They're so nice. They're on the loop across the street from Home Depot. You can't miss them. They have a big, huge uh, jumbo sign that changes all the time. I love passing that thing. They always say, come and wish our uh, employee happy birthday. There's always kinds they're always kind of like a family. So go check them out. They're awesome. They're going to treat you awesome. They have all kinds of cool cars. They also have used cars if you're looking for that. Uh, Toyota of Paris, on the loop by Home Depot. Thank you guys again so much for sponsoring this podcast. Let's get this thing started. Welcome to another Paris, Texas, a podcast. This is a podcast where you get to listen to people's stories, people that have either influenced or lived in the city of Paris, Texas. I love hearing their stories, and I can't wait for you to hear the next guest. All right, guys, let's get this thing started. I am very excited about this guest. I would almost say, I told him while ago that I'm nervous. I don't know why I'm nervous, because I've done a bunch of these podcasts, but I am nervous. Uh, Cass Haley, what is up? Hey, man, not much. Just uh, chilling, getting over a little bit of a, I think it's cedar fever. Cedar fever. It's like I've had horrible allergies. So uh, if there's even at all chance that someone doesn't know you, where would someone know you from? In the Paris, Texas area. Well, I went to North Lamar School. Uh, I mean that right now. If they knew you right now. <laughs> if they knew me right now in the Paris area, um, if you're ever at the Novice Store out in Novice, you might know me. <laughs> I stop at the Novice Store quite frequently. But like, what is it that, <laughs> what are you known for? Like, if they're trying to put well, a face with a name. Well, I am known for, for singing songs, and uh, I'm known for, you know, uh, Singing happy music. Happy I think music. I think that's you know that's what people. Well, I tell you what, if I when I listen to you, makes me want to get a margarita. <laughs> Go down there to the beach. All right, so let, let's jump to the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born here in Paris at McQuistian McQuistian Hospital. Awesome. And did you go to school like your whole life at one school, or did you hop around? Well, um, I did hop around, but I went most of mo- Probably North Lamar the most, you know. Mm-hmm. My parents moved around a little bit, so um, I did go to some other uh, schools, mm-hmm. elementary schools and stuff. But once I was in like middle school, I was at North Lamar. So, did you have like a thing in school that was like your thing? Like I was very passionate about. Yeah, it's pretty much what I'm doing now. Music. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I was. I've been, you know, I've been on my path since I was about twelve years old. Mm-hmm. I remember being. Uh, writing a song and thinking, you know what? This is what I want to do for my. This is it. This is what I want to do, and I really haven't haven't done much else. So in school, like that occupied your brain. Like you thought, like you thought about songs. You thought about writing songs. You thought about music and how to play and what you wanted to play. Yeah, rock star. Rock star. You always wanted to be a rock star. Now, sort of. Yeah, like I think so. I mean, because that was we were. It was the nineties, yeah. right? So it's mm-hmm. like bands like. Uh, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots and I was I was really into a lot of like punk rock and skateboard sort of culture, uh, ska and punk. So uh, yeah, I was definitely focused on like you know that kind of 
that kind of thing. So uh, I admire you for that because I, through all of school, had no idea what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And it took leaving Paris to figure myself out. And I'm a long story, and I've talked about that on the podcast, but um, I admire that you found that so early in life. Now, your dad... I can't really take credit for it. Yeah, it was, it was really... It was gifted and gifted to me by my parents. You know, right. they sort of encouraged... They bought me a guitar when I was eight, so I had a guitar for about three or four years before I fell in love. Okay. And um, my parents, you know, the magical thing that they did is that they they really instilled it in me that like whatever I wanted to do was totally like legitimate and okay mm-hmm. and possible, achievable. Yeah, so that really, 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 really built a foundation of uh, you know believing in myself and believing in what most people would call uh, you know a, just a, a dream, a pipe dream or a dream, something that might not be attainable. You know right. what I mean? Uh, um, but my parents were they were dreamers themselves, and they definitely you know just built that foundation within me that like go for it. And you use that foundation now because you put that you instill that same oh, concept in your children. It's it's yeah for sure I use it now and 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 it's the same thing that keeps me going day to day within like because you know I'm 39 years old I've been doing this you know a long time a long time <laughs> and you know there's it's this is. It is a little bit different of a career path, a singer songwriter mm-hmm. or any kind of career in the arts. The the financial security is not really there and you really have to <clears throat> meet, meet your edge mm-hmm. a lot. You have to risk a lot on a, you know as far as um you know, you might I, there's been times recently when I've had to go to the pawn shop. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? When I've had to take what this or that and go, I mean, it's 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 not really a most people that follow this path don't get rich. Well, and everybody has this sorry, we're jumping ahead in the story, but we'll jump back in a minute and I just want to go on this topic, but it, it, it's kind of like pirates. <laughs> everybody has this misconceived uh vision of what being a singer-songwriter is and they think that it's what they see in the movies or in TV shows and they think that it's this glorious life. Um, and not, not that there's not some like awesome things that happen in your story, but there's some hard times that that come along with that story. Yeah, you can't have your cake and eat it too in this kind of thing. <laughs> to be able to get to the place where uh, everybody, like to be able to, to, to achieve that dream, you almost like you have to face, you have to give up security. Yeah. You have to give up the idea that, Oh well, I can budget everything correctly, and I can do it this way. And and if I do it this way, I want you want everything to be taken care of, and then you still want this amazing thing to happen. And that's just not the way it happens. Not, it's not at it's all. it's you've got to go out there, and you've got to uh, you sort of have to risk it all. And I say risk it all in a calculated way. Be as smart and sober, and and go and be go about it in a in. Uh, the, the best way that you possibly can. And what I do is like on a quarterly sort of basis, I take a look at what my goals were three months ago. Mm-hmm. And I take a look at what I was my approach successful. Mm-hmm. And I refine, 
You know, mm-hmm. I go back and I say, I didn't like this about this, and I'm constantly changing right. my approach. Um, and I don't, and it took me a long time to get to the point where I realized it, you know, I used to maybe work a year or two before I would refine. Mm-hmm. But here, you know, in the last five, six years of my life, it's, I've realized that it, it, it helps to just do that more frequently. If set your goals, you know, what's essential for you, to, what's essential in your life, set your goals, and then refine your approach to get there. You know, all right. So, awesome. I love that. I love, love, love that. Jumping back just real quick. So, coming through high school, graduating, not not graduating. You didn't graduate. I didn't. I know all you children out there. See, this is try to graduate. Mind blowing because we went to school together. Yeah, we did. I've just always thought in my head that I've told everyone, I was like, we graduated together. Well, sh- we, we should have. And Cassie graduated with you, my wife. She was there and we were together. So maybe you saw me. <laughs> I was there at the graduation. But really? I didn't get, man, you know, that was another thing that like, you know. And you were different I, I was, in high school. Oh, I was. Yeah, I was very different. And I was I was there. Was, I had a lot of challenges that um that I was going through as well with just lifestyle and my fearless mentality uh, led me to a lot of dangerous places and a lot of dangerous decisions because I w- as fearless as I was about pursuing music, I was about other things too. Right. About the other experiences that I had, who I hung out with, I hadn't learned yet. You know what I mean? And so I was pushing the envelope in every direction and uh, meeting all the edges, <laughs> you know? And so by the time I was a sophomore, there was a lot of pressure with sports, and I sort of had to make a decision between what I wanted to invest my time in and what I wanted to sacrifice, and I made the decision to, to play music, and then after making that decision to play music, I uh, I felt almost, I felt almost, I don't know if this is the right word, I, I definitely felt exclu- like I was pushed out of the, I was no longer a football player. You know, and I felt mm-hmm. I felt some pretty hard like pressure of not being a part of the club. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As far as from the coaches and stuff, and that that was just one. And I also, you know, going to school, I felt a lot of pressure that they were trying to um, keep me from expressing myself in the way that I dressed and the way that I thought. And the, my parents were also big advocates of like Cass. You don't have to conform to anybody else's idea of the way you think and the way you dress. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, you do you. And so that made it really easy. There was a lot of pressures like that. I didn't feel I didn't feel included after quitting sports. I was getting in all kinds of trouble because of the way that I was dressing, mm-hmm. not because really the way that I was acting, but because I had maybe pink hair or purple hair yeah. or a mohawk or was wearing Jinkos or whatever. Um, I've actually talked about this a dozen times that like I felt, and I'm not trying to talk down on any specific person or the school no, as a whole. No, it was none of their fault. It's the establishment of just what was. But you know I, I mean? felt like my creativity was crushed. So yeah. I wasn't able to find my creative self until I left. Yeah. And uh, and I'm not trying to place blame on any again on any school or specific person. I just wasn't able to really I, I don't know find that creative soul that is Broadway. Yeah. So well, it's, de- it's definitely not it's definitely locally I you know it's definitely something that we could work on. 
cultivating the arts and cultivating creativity and expression within our community. It's definitely something that people forget that the creative arts, it's a service. It's not just something. It's a service to humanity. Yeah. And some people, you know, I've had people get angry at me for comparing the service of arts to the service of the the fire department or whatever. Yeah. But I'm like, well, imagine your life. Take every bit of creative expression. So we're talking uh, creative arts. We're talking cre- we're talking creative writing. We're talking music. We're talking art. We're talking any kind of creative expression. Mm-hmm. Imagine taking that out of your life and then tell me that it's not a service to our our experience in life that that being there. It's the bridge from the internal to the external. It's the bridge of emotions and a lot mm-hmm. of people don't they don't think about that and we're, and they're not taught the function of art on a human level. Right. That it serves a purpose. And so I hear I hear you and I felt the same way. Right. I just happened to be in a different situation where my parents were both artists too. Right. And they were like do it, man. Do you know, it. Yeah, do your thing. You know, we believe in you. And, you know, it wasn't all perfect in my, my childhood either. That was uh, that was just one of the, that was one of the blessings. There was also all kinds of crazy stuff going on too because right. with my parents being teenagers of the 60s, yes, their minds were open and they were artists, but they had a lot of hangups. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of bad lifestyle choices that compounded and made it really tough living with it. And affected you. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I might have been able to, you know, I mean, that also made it easy. By the, t- man, by the time I was 15, my parents were, I wasn't living with my parents. So by the time eighth grade, I was sort of on my own. That's one thing people That's don't crazy. realize. My parents moved to Tulsa. So I was living out in the woods in their little cabin by myself. Um, so it is sort of crazy. <laughs> so I do have to kind of apologize here. I had this perception of you in high school. I know. That probably was very false. I don't think it was false. I think that there's, I think that there, I, I know what perception you had of me. Well, and here's where the real apology comes. So I moved back to town 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And it was astronomically hard for me not to still have that exact same perception of you. I understand, man. And, like, I mean, you had started coming around town. I'd seen you from a distance a few times. I was like, I'm not talking to him. Yeah, right. And I just could not let go. This guy's even a, though you probably thought this guy's a jerk, right? Yeah. And even because though you know what, dude? Because I was, I was a jerk. But here's the deal: I was a kid. I am nothing like <laughs> what I was like in high school. Yeah. People meet me now, and they're like, "You're who? That you're Dustin? The Dustin? What? A lot of people don't even know my name is Dustin. They just call me Broadway. Yeah. And it it mind boggles. So even though I know that you're nothing like that's not the same human being. But that that human being exists in me, and it's 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 something of like, you know, it's my shadow. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's it's the person that I don't want to be. It's the angry kid that's mad at his parents for not supporting him in other ways, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it might mm-hmm. be, or not it's, being there. Not yeah, just not being there when I needed them there. It's the it's the kid that is you know making decisions. Uh, it's the ego. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's the kid that thinks he's cool because he can play music and these other people can't and I can get attention. Right. You know, it's it's all the ego and it's one of those things where um, 
it's 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 definitely a part of me that I don't like, and I still have it. Mm-hmm. I still can jump back to that that dude that is egotistical and has a temper. Most of the time, the only people that get to see it is my family. Unfortunately, the Whoa. ones closest to you. Right. <laughs> you know, but I have a whole topic I can go into that topic. Right. But, but what's great though is you spend the other ninety nine percent of your life singing and preaching positivity. Which is it's because I know the flip side. I yeah. know the flip side, so I know the polarity of that is how I do it. <laughs> right. All right. So coming out of high school, I kind of I love getting off track, and I hate getting off track at the same time. Coming out of high school, like, what was your plan? Come- well, I mean, so I was already on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd been I'd been on I'd been on it for a while. I uh, were you to- like touring? So, so at coming. I, when I when I I quit high school and I actually moved to Salt Lake City with a band, okay, um, to work with this guy that was supposedly a big deal. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> this guy wasn't a big deal, but we were gonna we moved to uh, Salt Lake City and then Pocatello, Idaho, and then guess what? This is how crazy my parents are. My parents came up too. <laughs> they decided that they yeah. were tired of this area down here and they came up, and that lasted for about six months. And, uh, then I moved back to town and I was about, I was 17 at the time I moved back to town and then, uh, so I should have still been in high school. You guys were juniors, uh, or maybe just starting senior year and I met, uh, Cassie. I met my wife, Mm -hmm. my to be wife to be Cassie Black, who was going to North Lamar and was cousins with, uh, uh, Candace Emerson. Mm -hmm. So... Candace had been like I moved back to town and I was working at uh, I was washing dishes at Applebee's and I was working at Athletic Attic. I had two jobs. Uh, this time I was living in my sister's attic and uh, playing music. I had a band called Forty Cents Off, which was a ska band. Uh, had a bunch of guys from the Paris High School band: Danny McConan, mm-hmm. uh, Wesley Holman, Brandon Morris, a- uh, Andy. Uh, uh, what's been been all Andy Alsop, you know Ben Alsop. I don't. So Andy Alsop, uh, uh, Brandon Downs. Do you remember Brandon I know Downs? That name. So those were all Paris guys. So we had a ska band. Yeah. And uh, called Forty Cents Off, and we were trying to do that thing. That lasted. They were all going to graduate. They were a year ahead of me. They were going to graduate, and they were all going off to college. So I ended that group, and. Uh, I got another group together called Woodbelly, and me and Cassie started getting serious, and um, I sort of wanted to, I knew that I had to make the jump from like Paris to Dallas. Yeah. So that was my plan. Bigger crowd. Like, yeah, I was like, well, just opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to, I had to take it to the big city, and Cassie was afraid. She didn't want to go. She actually... Like sort of refused to go, and I was like, "Well, this is this is that spirit that my parents, you know, instilled in me." I said, "Well, I'm going, and I'm gonna go get us a place. And if you still feel that way in a week or two, you know, you can stay. You do what you want to do, but I'm going. You know what I mean?" Mm-hmm. Um, the band that was in that at this time, Woodbelly, was me, Kent Gooding, uh, Heath. Um, Heath's last name. Heath's gonna. If you listen to this, I'm sorry, Heath. Jumper. No, but his sister was Shelly Jumper, 
And it's he, okay. I'm bad with names yeah. too. Heath Gage, uh, not Heath Gage. You're doing way better than I would ever do. So Heath, and then uh, we had another guy in the band. I'm sorry, guys. I love you guys. Um, Adam, maybe is the name was. So those guys weren't moving either. You know, yeah. they were with Cassie. They were staying. They were staying in Paris. They they weren't gonna move to Dallas to to be in some band with me. You know, like they just weren't. They weren't that committed. Yeah, but you're in it. Yeah, I moved to Dallas and. Got me an apartment over in Arlington called Turtle Creek. It was like six hundred dollars a month, all bills paid in the hood. Um, Turtle Creek, I've been there. It was a green. It was a green apartment complex right off of like uh, Cooper Street and uh, uh, I forgot what. It's just south of the campus, UTA. Huh. Just south of UTA, and I got an apartment. And Cassie, uh, within a couple weeks, decided she was going to come over there, and. Brandon Morris, my old drummer from 40 Cents Off, was going to school in Arlington. So he was going to be in the band, the new band. And uh, and then uh, we ended up finding a bass player. And then we were we had a band in Dallas, and we started playing. What was that name of that band? Woodbelly. Woodbelly. Still Woodbelly. Woodbelly, okay. yeah. Oh, I That's didn't really. That's how committed re- I was. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's on my arm. Well, and it was it was also to, you know... I was just that hardcore. I was like, you know, this was, I had, I was anti-plan B. Yeah. People was like, what's your plan B? My in-laws, dude, Cassie's family at the time, they totally didn't, they, and how could they see it? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How could anybody see it? Um, a good part of it was that I was delusional too. I was, I was a dreamer and a little bit delusional and the pair of the two helped sort of like create the situations where I could grow to be what I thought I was. Yeah, but I also think like creatives, um, I have, I struggle with this on a regular basis. I think creatives do what they do so well, it's hard for them to describe what they're seeing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I can sit down uh, and try to pitch a video idea to my wife or, or anyone else, and they're just looking at me like deer in headlights. I don't, I don't get what you're saying. And then I show them the video after it's done, and they're just like, "Oh, so that guy did the thing and the why? Okay, yeah. I get it." Yeah. But like, I was like, "But that's exactly what I told I told you exactly what was like, happening. I just yes. couldn't see it." It's that vision, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? That some people have it, and some pe- it's hard. Uh, it's hard for other people to understand. It's that's I see, I feel the same way about like I'll have this feeling about a song mm-hmm. and it'll be two words and just like this little line and I'll be like this is this is going to be this is hitting a nerve. This is going to be great and I'll play it to somebody and they no reaction. And I'll be like do, do you not see what's special about this? And no, they not but then when it's finished, oh man, I love that that song. Yeah. It's just like some people just, they just, you know, that's why you do what you do and I do what I do and yeah, they do what they do. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I totally get it. I, I do think though that what I was saying before about, you know, like to be a dreamer and to be an artist is, is, is to be able to have the ability first to be able to sit with a focus like one focus for a long time on one thing but it's also the other part of it is to be able to have a vision and visualize what that thing could be yeah not what it is that's like the spirit of the creator what could that what could it be so as someone who's like maybe just starting out in any kind of creative world 
don't judge yourself on what you are. Mm-hmm. Judge yourself on your visions of what you could be because yeah. that's the creative spirit and that's what it is. Yeah. That's if if I was judged on how talented I was when I was 15 years old for what it was then. No. No. It wasn't good enough to 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 be able to build a home and buy a place with. No, it wasn't. But I had I had that 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 creative spirit in me to visualize like those songs and maybe my craft visualize myself becoming better mm-hmm. visualize me getting better at guitar visualize and then putting action behind that vision and i think that's important for anything that we do in life is people have to people have to remember that it's the, it's falling in love with that vision that makes it all possible you right. fall in love with the vision and then you put your action behind it and you, you follow chase it. that yeah and you get there you get there and you never give up you never give up you know what i mean <laughs> Um. <clears throat> okay, so we're we're in we're in Dallas. How long did Woodbelly last? So Woodbelly um lasted. That was about the year two thousand. Okay. Um. So right after graduation or so, two thousand two thousand and one. I was begging Cassie to move. We move over to Dallas. We're playing around Dallas. Uh, for a good. Uh, Woodbelly had some success. We uh we were we were a hot band in Dallas, and we played every sports bar from you know, Fort Worth to Dallas, and we were playing 20 to 30 times a month, um, making okay money, uh, but it was all sports bars and stuff until one night we had this uh, this band walk in, and it was these two famous bands, one uh, called uh, Something Corporate and Yellow Card, who were both two pop punk bands at the time that mm-hmm. were really popular. They were on the radio, and they, they fell in love with our band, and they are like, they wanted to take us on tour. So... I had heard everything under the sun playing the sports bar circuit. You know, I, all the guys that come up, I want to, oh, I'm going to make your band big, man. You uh. know what I mean? I want to, I want to, I want to invest in your band. And I, so I was a skeptic from the get go of meeting these guys. I'd really never heard of their bands, but uh, a few other people that I was with did. And they're like, oh, dude, they're, they're like popular. Um, and like within two weeks, I got a phone call and it was the agent of uh, something corporates. Uh, Andrew McMahon, who's in uh, Andrew Andrew McMahon in the wilderness now, and he used to be, he had a group called Jack's Mannequin. I don't know if you've ever heard I've of. I've heard that name. Um, really, really popular, successful dude. Um, and they offer us uh, a tour on the East Coast, playing all sold out House of Blues, a thousand people. We had been playing to like fifty to sixty people, and so we took like seven or eight guys out in an old Tahoe with a U-Haul trailer for a hundred dollars a gig. And we did that tour. And that was our first, you know, where we felt like we were having success. We started picking up after that. We started picking up other, like, opening gigs where we opened up for Blues Traveler and all kinds of prominent reggae bands. And uh, then the, the, that sort of sort of leveled off. And we were back sort of just doing our thing, you know, playing to 50 or 60 people. In Dallas again? In Dallas. And <clears throat> at the time, uh, things were... You know, I got, uh, Cassie got pregnant and we moved out of the band house, which there was a bunch of dudes living in the band apartment and we moved to our own apartment. And after that, I'd been, uh, our man, our band manager, who's also from Paris, Seth Morley. Um, he, uh, his brother-in-law worked for the Dallas Morning News and he got the wind of a backdoor audition to America's Got Talent. And so seven, what year is this? 2007. So this seven okay. years, six, seven years, Woodbilly had been going and we'd been playing around. Awesome. 
So uh, Seth calls me and he's like, man, he's like, I got this opportunity. I think you should do it. And I was, uh, I really wasn't. It's not your scene. Nah, I I actually hated those TV shows. Like I, I was like a, I thought I was way too good and way too cool. That's I was still in that phase of like mine. I was like, dude, I'm like, I'm like way like you know, screw all that stuff. You know, I'm punk rock or whatever I thought I was. You know, mm-hmm. which is all just, just I was in my twenties. It's the land of ideologies mm-hmm. where you think that you know everything. You know, so I felt a lot of pressure from Seth. Seth was a bit, he's a big guy. He's like six foot, who knows, six foot five, six foot six. Six foot huge. Yeah, big dude and also super smart guy and and just super overbearing with his energy. And he pretty much, you know, he pretty much sort of intimidated me into doing Peer it. Peer pressured like, you into it. Yeah, like I'm not going to like, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm going to be mad. And I, me and him were good friends and so I sort of did it. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm on America's Got Talent and I didn't plan on being on America's Got Talent. I definitely didn't plan on everything happening that happened on America's Got Talent. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't put any thought into it. Is why I didn't plan on it. So it just sort of happened. All that vision, <laughs> and here I was in some other thing, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, I guess God's plan. Yeah. Um, and that's when you know magic's really happening. It's like you plan away, and then you find you, you end up somewhere, and you're like, wow. Because it got me to where I was visualizing, and it, and it fulfilled mm-hmm. a lot of things. It just was a different way than I thought that it was going to go. Right. So 2007, I uh, on America's Got Talent. It was a crazy, wild circus. Mm-hmm. And I end up uh, getting through that whole thing and becoming runner-up. I didn't win it. I was close. 50-50 shot at winning that million bucks, but I didn't make it. So... Uh, at that point, I was doing, as far as f- like financially, I was better than I'd ever been because we made some money during the show. I was selling merchandise. I was making more money than ever. Like, I mean, crazy. After being on a major TV show, it's crazy what s- people will pay you to play. Mm-hmm. And so I had all my bills paid and I felt rich um, just because I had several thousand dollars in the bank. I wasn't rich, but because I'd been so poor, for, for my so whole long. Life, if I had my bills paid and I had, if I had 10 grand in the bank, oh man, I was rich. Right. You know? So at that time, we were living over in Dallas. I, uh, the TV show executives had executed all their options with me. So basically, I didn't win the show, but they were going to hold me accountable and basically sign me to their 360 deal. Which means they they basically took over the Cass Haley business mm-hmm. is in, in a roundabout way, so we don't have to unpack that long story. They pretty much just sort of said, "Ah, we invested in you over the summer of you being on America's Got Talent. We pretty much own every aspect of your career, and we're going to invest some money into it, and we're going to give you a quarter million dollars, and we're going to tell you who you are. We're going to tell you what you sing. And they didn't say it this way. They were nice about everything. They weren't mm-hmm. bad people. But this is basically when you get down to the fundamentals of what was going on this is what was going on they introduced me to the guys that were going to write my songs they were introducing me to the my manager who was in cahoots with the label and traditionally your manager and your label and stuff those should all be separate entities manager mm-hmm. label booking agent you know so that you have some team you know some people some people to give you perspective on what this other label wants or what this so I found that really weird and I found it uncomfortable because I never, 
plan on being on the show in the first place. I didn't plan on, definitely didn't plan on selling the mom and pop burger shop, the Cass Haley business, to some dudes that, you know, Simon Cow and his company. I couldn't stand Simon Cow, like as far as what he sort of, like his air and like what he was, was on his TV shows, whether or not he... He never treated me bad, and I had several conversations with him. He seems like a, an okay dude, but I just never liked his whole vibe and what he was doing. So <clears throat> at that time, I moved. Uh, uh, I went back home. Paris. I, I went back to Paris. So I was out in L.A., and they executed all their options. And I was supposed to have this meeting with management and label and stuff. And I just sort of ran away, and I ended up hiring a lawyer. I ran away and I ignored him for a while and hired a lawyer and uh, didn't want to do the deal. I, they ended up releasing me from the deal about six months later. And then I just, uh, six months after the TV show, we're living in Dallas and I all of a sudden have a vision of like, we need to move back home and build a house. And uh, I feel like that's like the next move. That's like what God's calling me to do. I mean, I literally woke up, had the vision that that's what we needed to do, that we that there would be no other time in our life where we had the opportunity to do that. We just happened to have some money to be able to make down payments and to get stuff rolling. And I sit down on a piece of paper and I drew it out, called my dad, talked to him about it and see if, you know, he would help with, you know, planning the process and sort of taking me through the ropes of uh, estimating everything and planning out what it would take to build a house and, uh, then uh, you did a lot of the work yourself, right? Yeah, I did. I consulted with my dad and I consulted with my brother-in-law and there was a lot, I had a lot of friends that helped me, you know, do the ground work and stuff, but we pretty much built it from the ground up. Um, we had a, you know, there were some different little things. We had a team of framers come out and help with the, the basic framing of the low section, but all the, the concrete we did, all of the, um, the, the, the roof and all of the, the framing of the, um, trusses and the, uh, all the sheetrock, all the wiring we pulled, all the AC. I pretty much, I hired a company, but um, basically, I you know had a friend and said, "You design the AC system. I'll be your helper so mm -hmm. that I could get that great deal. I'll do all the work. You just tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong." Right. And I basically did every step that way because I really wouldn't have been able to afford a house if I hired a contractor. So I ended up getting a banker to give me a construction loan against the land gotcha that, you know and so it was just everything sort of just lined up and uh that's how we got back here to paris and y'all had uh one kid at this time we had evan at this time yeah evan was the only kid and then by the time we had built the house we got pregnant with another one yay and um, my studio turned into nola's bedroom <laughs> you know uh but, you know, that's how we got back to Paris. And then ever since we got back to Paris, you know, we've just been trying to, uh, you know, just sort of just keep on hustling. And it's just been so that was, you know, 2008 when we moved in the house uh, or 2000, late 2009, maybe um, that we actually moved in the house. Um, and then from there. So for the last 11 years, I've just been traveling the country and learning as I go, you know, for. From 2009 to about 2012, I was doing a lot of traveling by myself, and uh, it really didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work for me, like, emotionally, spiritually. It didn't work for the family, and it was a really tough time. 
I was having some success and I had signed with a, a label out of New York City, um, Easy Star Records, and I had some success in the reggae genre and like had a couple records that did really good on the Billboard charts, which doesn't, I mean, it's cool, but it don't really mean much in all reality. Yeah. In the reggae genre, if you sell, you know, 2010s before, uh, before Spotify and before mm -hmm. any of those streaming services like that. So you s records were still being sold. And so if you sold 10,000 records, dude, you're, you're number one. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so it was a different world back then. So I did, I did pretty good on those couple of records. And then, uh, you know, I was really unhealthy. I was b by myself a lot. Physically unhealthy. Physically unhealthy, spiritually unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. Okay. I was by myself. Yeah. I was by myself. And the thing that I realized is even though I was still on this same path of following my dreams, I had sort of something had happened where I had I was making a lot of decisions based in fear and I didn't even I didn't catch it. Mm -hmm. I, I was taking opportunities that didn't really inspire me. I was just taking them f because of the fear that another opportunity might not come. Yes. So that's a hard place even to be able to recognize. You know, you're like, you want to be grateful and thankful for opportunities. But you know, when you start taking a bunch of opportunities that you're just taking out of fear and you're letting fear be your compass, you're not living that inspired life. And when your life doesn't go the direction you want, you need to unpack that and you need to take a look at that. And, and it's probably that. You know what I mean? It's like, as a creative... And just anybody, like you need to, if you don't like your job, you don't need to work there. Right. It's as simple as that. Find something it's you love. It's as simple as that. And I, and I get a why I got to. No, you don't. You don't. I'm really one of those guys that says, no, you don't. If you, you know, if you want a better, happier life, don't do things that you don't like. Yes. And it, it's like, I know that sounds arrogant. And to some people, and you know, oh, well, you've got to pay the bills. Yes, you do. But you also, you, I think it's your duty to like, I think it's your duty to yourself to be able to be happy and for your life to have meaning. And that's, that, that's what success is. Right. And it's not that you have to cold turkey, like quit your job no, or walk you can out, plan it. You can go plan in and it. cuss your boss out. Like go no. find that. First off, go find that thing that you love doing, that passion that you yeah. love doing. Then figure out how you can get that Yep. passion yep. and turn it into a job there are literally but people sometimes it always ends up coming to the point like we talked about earlier in the in the, in the uh, podcast is you always get to that point where you still have your job and you think you you don't want it but you think you want another one but you want to wait around till someone comes and that no. one that won't ever come until no. you quit you know what i mean like the door that you need to knock on is on the other side of you quitting that thing right. that, you, that you're not happy doing. Yeah, so I had a person uh, describe it to me like this, like, so you you spend your childhood, like, living this dream, and you have this dream, but then as soon as you graduate or go into adulthood, like, reality hits. So there's this, like, paradigm switch to where, like, you have to make money, you have to pay your bills, you have to pay. So reality hits, but you still have these dreams. So the trick in life, not really a trick, the goal in life is to figure out how to get that dream to start get, getting you those things that you need. So money, house payment, whatever. Meaning. Meaning in life. The feeling happiness. of success. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, all of those. And you slowly start building that. I think, I think you get the money first and you realize that it, the meaning and the success isn't in the money. Right. You know what I'm saying? But like, it can oh, be. Well, if you're, if you don't have any money, then the money contributes. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and if you know what to do with the money creatively, like if you know, like mm-hmm. what you want to do, you know, but if it's just for money, just, it doesn't, it doesn't bring it. No. And you can't, you can't base like your bliss isn't based in money and you're like you're you're like if you if you make decisions to attain more power and to attain more wealth you prob there's a good chance that you're not a happy person if right. that's what even if you're successful at it right which i know tons of people that have a lot of money that look at me with starry eyes and say man you're so lucky <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like two months behind on my van payment and, you know, Paris Lumber, I'll pay you Paris Lumber, 150 bucks. I got to come the next month, you know, all the accounts. And I'm just like, but there's truth to that of like, you know what? It's like being, knowing what you love and just going down that road of, of, of being true to yourself. There's yeah. really, there's really nothing like it. Well, I mean, I, I was going to say like, there are people who make a living off of being a podcaster. They find that thing they love and they start doing it as a side hustle. They start doing it just for fun in their basement and then they, it grows and grows and grows and grows. And I'm not talking about like that's not the goal for this podcast. I have zero goal for that be, uh, in my life. But there are people out there that do that. They love podcasting and they build right. it up to the point that they live off of podcasting right? or vlogging. Then or, and I, I, think, I think the podcasting sort of phenomena is amazing. And I think the great thing about it is is that it's it's connection, and it's mm-hmm. and, you know we live in a time that we're more connected to anybody, but yes. yet these conversations aren't happening. And I think that's why that's why people love listening in. They love to get to know people. They love they love hearing the back and forth. Is because this is this is what people actually used to do. do. I, I <laughs> say that all the time. One of the I have many reasons for doing this podcast, so and the, for the reason of what it is, the concept of telling stories and hearing other per- uh-huh. people's stories. But I would say that like one of those main reasons is that you don't any you no longer see people sitting in coffee shops telling each other their story or going out and even at work. You, you know, if you think back in the old days, when they took a lunch. They just kind of hung out with their their coworkers and they uh-huh. told each other about what was going on in their life. I don't think that happens anymore. People are yeah. on their phones. Playing. It definitely doesn't happen as much, yeah. but I, I I think because we've had a shift, meaning that we've we we've had our focus you know ganked by media companies and phones, which I love to be able to have my phone. Oh yeah, me too. I love I love to be able to listen in to to Joe Rogan yes. or Tim Ferriss or whoever's podcast or whatever. Yes. But I think that I lost my frame. <laughs> What was I saying? <laughs> I'm sick, y'all. Uh, no, but I, th- I think that it's, n- I think that it's not happening as much. But I think that it probably. Oh, I know what I was saying. I think because we've had that shift. Yes. That it is. It's come. Like people are yearning for it. Yes. And it. We're gonna have a shift in the pendulum, and it's gonna go back the other way to where the value of connection and conversation and, and seeing people and, and valuing our relationships and our stories is going to come back, you know? Right. And, and I think that technology is going to help it. You know, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a, a, 
I'm I'm a, I'm the optimist in in this situation where right. I feel like I feel like humans are so brilliant and 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 smart enough to realize what's bad and good for us right. that we that we figure it out. Yes. You know, and like, you know, worrying about your kids being on uh game systems. Yes. Right. Well, you can worry. You can worry. Yeah. But they're going to have to experience what it feels like to have their brain scrambled by that Nintendo Switch. And and and, and if, when they go out in the woods and you break them away from that and or they go get on the, ba- the a horseback or they go go hang out with, you know, go hang out on a river or whatever and they're like they're going to be able to have a different kind of perspective with reality. So they're going to actually enjoy that mm-hmm. in a new even more deeper way because they've been so vacant or not vacant but they've been sort of in the multiverse in the in the technology world in deep inside of their minds excuse right. me i think that i think that that's going to make things richer with their experience of nature yeah. I, I agree with that I, or I, could it could it could but i also think sometimes parents I, we talked about this in a recent podcast that some parents get so mind blocked of letting their kids adventure into and I'm not does not point out any specific parent into Are you sure? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm positive. Like supporting their kid in the gaming world or their kids that are sitting at home playing video games and making more money than both their parents combined by playing video games recording it and and not that it's about money. But like it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a world where I can support my child's dream. It, it, I mean, it's it's kind of like your music at an early age. Like yeah. if they're if they're passionate about this. Now I'm not saying let them like like waste away in their room, never growing. Have them figure out how to get like code gaming. Yeah, what makes grow them, in yeah. grow in that field so that you can turn it into a passionate job yeah and and probably like if somebody's like an exceptional gamer they have to be exceptional at many different things yes you know they, they probably could learn how to tie any knot right they probably could like you know their, their cognitive abilities are probably you know off the charts take that passion and build it to something that they can live like happily their whole life yeah. doing because you took that thing that they were so excited about as a kid without carpal tunnel, right? <laughs> without <laughs> carpal tunnel. Um, I, I, I just and, and maybe this spars from my childhood and our childhood of like having that cre- creativity squashed in my as a child and not being able to express myself. I would hate to see me do that to my kid by saying you can't play this game, yeah, because it's not a job, yeah. You just gotta say you can't play the game, a hundred percent of the time. Ten hours a day, yeah. like I mean, you know, a couple. I do hours, get cu- that. Couple hours a day, but when you start seeing like when you start seeing the game face, meaning like when you start talking to your kid and they look through you, they give you the ten yard stare where they're looking at the wall behind you because right. they've been looking at the game screen so long, and that happens. It's it's just like the same thing of when they've had three pops. You know, it's like right. they start acting all cracked out. Um, but yeah, no, I yeah, we're on the same page. Um, okay, so so uh, Mer- America's Got Talent, America's Got Talent behind us, and where? So you you're now in Paris, Texas. So um, after the reggae sort of phase of like I me, mean, I was signed with uh, Easy Star, and I was doing a lot of reggae tours. I 
toured Europe uh, a couple times. And now your family at this point is going with you. My family's not. No, at you're... At this point, my family's not. So this is 2009 through 2012. Okay. My family's not. And this, this is your when, lonely time? This is my lonely time. This is when I gained a lot of weight. Even though I... I 2007... From 2005 to 2007... Those like in that two year phase of like pizza and you know the nightlife of Deep Ellum, uh, I probably you know in high school I was 180 pounds, 190 pounds, wasn't a big dude, and I was you know by the time 2005 rolls around I was 280 pounds, and then within the next three or four years I was 300 pounds, and then 320 pounds, and I got up to 340 pounds, and. Uh, you know, around 2012, uh, I think it was 2012, 2013, I was definitely sick, you know, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I'd been traveling a lot, uh, making a lot of decisions based in fear. Even though I was getting to play music, I wasn't with my family. I wasn't, I was alone. Uh, and, you know, I, I found myself super unhappy and making a lot of horrible decisions, you know what I mean? Whether it was eating at Taco Bell or drinking or this or that, it was like I just, uh, I just wasn't in a good place. And uh, it, it all sort of changed. It's funny. I was in this place, sick, and I got this opportunity to play this music festival up in Minnesota. And it was cool little snowboarding, ski. Uh, resort mm -hmm. festival and I was like oh this would be a perfect time for me and Eben to go and, and hang out and we'll go skiing and snowboarding together and it'll be a cool father-son trip just me and him so we go up it's called Snowball up in Lutzen Mountain Minnesota right on the Canadian border right on Lake Superior and uh, I end up we end up having a good time but I end up having an accident and I took a couple really hardcore spills down the bunny slope. <laughs> yeah, down the bunny slope. Here I am, 340 pounds, skiing negative 15 degrees on icy slopes. You know, what was I doing? Why, why was I even trying to ski at that weight? Um, there goes that ego and that the overly confident sort mm -hmm. of spirit I have. Um, so I'm skiing down the bunny slope, which, by the way, for anybody that hears the word bunny slopes and thinks, oh, that sounds fun. No big deal. Well, the bunny slope is bigger than any hill we have around here. <laughs> it's totally dangerous, and you can totally hurt yourself on the bunny slope. And I did. I took some really, I mean, first off, 340 pounds going down an icy slope. I was hauling. I didn't really know how to stop. I just knew that I was flying by everybody. You know, I was, there goes these friends that we were with. And I was like, uh, I mean, I was just trying to stand up. You know, my legs are shaking and I'm going down the mountain. And uh, I tried to like pizza, you know, the whole pizza yeah. sort of. Snowplow. Sort of, yeah. I tried a pizza and just like I have a yard sale. One leg goes one way, other leg goes the other way. And uh, I had a couple hardcore falls. And I knew that I had fallen hard and got shook up. But. I was such a tough guy that I just got up and I just kept going and I didn't, I, I wasn't hurt so bad that I had to go to the hospital or anything, but I was real sore. And by the time I got home, 
uh, I was even more sore, my neck and like things just got really bad. And, and I, uh, uh, I had, after I got home, I had some, uh, gigs scheduled like in a couple weeks and I, I actually, this is how off I was in that, in that two weeks between the time I got home from that concert mm-hmm. and the time I was supposed to go back out, I didn't touch the guitar. I didn't play one bit, man. My life was like this. When I was at home with family, it was all family. And when I was out, when I was on the road, it was all music. And they were completely fractionalized, fragmented, and they were completely separate. And so I got home, didn't play music at all, flew out to go on this college tour. It was like literally within a month or two, I was going to make six months worth of income. So it was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I went out and I get to the first gig and I can't sing. I can't sing. I go, I try to, I try to sing and it's just like my throat locks up. My muscles in my shoulders, I get this taste of metal when I swallow and something was going on. And I end up like talking through this gig because I had to make the money. Like I end up sort of, I feel like I ripped them off because they had a, got a whole, I feel bad for anybody that saw me at this university because it was just the worst gig ever. You know, I was like, this guy, love is crazy. This guy. And I mean, it was really that bad. And uh, I had several more of these to do. Like, I had a month long of these. So I get through, I go through, and this is almost like, uh, what do they call that? Where you're like, where you're. Uh, Writer's block? No, what, like in, 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 what is it called when you're, when you're sort of your sins are open before God and you have to walk back. You have to walk back in, in like, uh, I forgot what they call that. It's it's where everything is, it's like, it was the destruction of my ego, right. basically. It was like, it was everything I had built myself up to be. I'd built myself up to be this, I'm a, I'm a singer. I'm not just a singer, I'm a super soulful singer. Yeah. Like my ego was built up. You know, and I, I thought I was one of the best. You know what I mean? In my head. Yeah. And it was just destroyed. And each gig, each gig that I couldn't sing was just taken down that much more and that much more and that much more until I finally couldn't do any more gigs. And I, I, I pulled the plug on the rest of the gigs and I went home and I flipped out. I lost my mind and uh, I cried for a few days and I blamed God for a few days and then I woke up and I said well now I have to look for a solution what's the solution I started calling around and I, and I ended up uh, being able to get a uh, an appointment at UT Southwestern with a vo- vocal doctor um, and they did some tests and um, found out I had some nerve damage and all kinds of vocal resonance issues and muscle muscle issues within my neck and my shoulders. And I started my journey with, on voice therapy for about a year of voice therapy. And I had to essentially sort of get reacquainted with my voice and learn how to sing again. Um, it was completely different. It was a completely different sort of whole thing. Every, the way I sang before, I could no longer do that the place I held my muscles and everything that I had worked up that didn't work anymore. And so that was, this was like, this was the beginning of me realizing of what was important in my life. And that although I love singing, I love playing that, you know, 
what's really important is like not what we like you know music was just something that I did it wasn't who I was and I asked myself who am I who am I without music mm-hmm. and the only thing that I could come up with is I'm my relationships so my relationships were suffering at the time because I wasn't in my family's life mm-hmm. so that's where I realized that like you know I have to prioritize my relationships and not just with my family but with everybody meaning see people yeah respect people value your relationships with people because man that's when when everything else is gone I really feel like that's all we got all we have is is our connectedness with each other and our relationships with people and I feel like it's eternal and um I you know started writing uh, um songs at this time that were sort of about my healing journey through this whole thing of losing my voice. And, um, so you saw a, a change in how you wrote and how, what, like the meanings behind your songs oh, in dude, this experience. Everything, everything became way clearer. And I, I had, uh, I, it really, 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 really helped. I had a co-writer on this album. His name's Andrew Terrett. And it was another artist I fell in love with right before I had my accident. And we had planned to make an album together. Well, Andrew is the super talented dude from Georgia. He goes by the name of Tubby Love as far as his stage name now. And he's a successful singer-songwriter. And just having somebody else there that I respected to help mm-hmm. me bounce off ideas. And before Tubby and I started writing together, I had always relied on my emotion and soul and expression versus my words. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't try to express lyrically fully what I was feeling. I just would rely on the emotion. Mm-hmm. I might say a line over and over, you know, instead of look for that second and third line and that fourth line that just takes you further down in that song and just explains it more fully. And Tubby really sort of inspired me to make sure that it's obvious what the song means, that the emotion's obvious, but it makes that emotion that much more powerful. Yeah. Like the words are are clear and are rich. And it you know, yeah, poetic license is great. It's great to go on that tangent of this or that and have that poetic license and say this that nobody knows what it means. You know, that that's that's available too. And that's a thing. But it's also pretty amazing when the emotion is there and the words are there. And to see how to see how powerful it was for myself and my own healing mm-hmm. to be able to have songs where I used my emotions to navigate and put words with them that that was how I was feeling. I was using the the emo, the, the melodies that I was attracted to and trying to pair them with the, the with words, and that was so the, that was like the beginning of of me sort of starting to realize like. Um, sort of self-actualize a lot of this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was always healing for me to express myself in song, but it became really powerful when I started expressing myself in song fully that I actually understood. Now, I could actually understand what the lyrical content was of my own songs. It sounds funny, but, you know, um, that's more music, more family. Yeah. And that album, you know, really painted sort of, got us on the road that we're on now 
to like prioritizing family and sort of, you know, reinventing the way that we were pursuing my career. So is this the time of your life when you started um, bringing music into the family, like teaching your kids? Exactly. Yeah. So and, and so the goal was, I, I was I saw that music was on the road away from family, and I saw that family was away from music. So the idea of more music, more family, was the merging of those two worlds. So to holistically sort of bring this thing back to whole, mm-hmm. it should have never been separate. You know, and I didn't know that. And, know, they, and they started going on tour with you too, right? Yeah, so we started traveling together as a family. We in, we ended up, we had a, the More Music, More Family ended up uh, getting, we, we went to a f- chocolate farm in Hawaii and recorded this album. And it was just magical sequence of events. We mm-hmm. could have never afforded to, you know, live in Hawaii for a month and record at a studio as far as if you called some studio in Hawaii and just wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. it. It was just a magical sequence of events that led to the opportunity of being able to do this through Tubby and his connections. And so Tubby Tubby was wise enough to say, this is a good place for your family to go and for us to go record this album where you can be in a space that feels healing and that feels good. Let's go do it there. And so we went out and we lived in Hawaii for a month and recorded this album. And then from that album on, we traveled together. And uh, from there, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, I started touring a lot less as well mm-hmm. because I realized that the pace, like, it's a balance too of like, I wanted, we were, we were trying to homeschool. We're trying to be on the road and like that is like a difficult balance right mm-hmm. there. It's like to be able to do it, you know, I know that there's value of them traveling around and meeting new people, but I was, you know, schooled in public school and there's subjects and you got to have, you know, you got to learn some different things. And like, so we realized that being on the road, it didn't really work with our mm-hmm. homeschooling protocol. So we started touring less and we, we made, we were like sort of set a, uh, you know, 50 to 60 dates a year is what we were going to do. And uh, with long amounts of time at home to be able to focus on homeschooling and to be able to focus on the farm and have kids, have the kids, you know, be able to have uh, farm responsibilities with chickens Mm -hmm. and ducks and, you know, so much much education in that too. Right. Them just being able to take care of another animal that needs them. Right. Um, And, you know, so that was 2000 and uh, uh, around 2014, 2015. And, um, from there, I mean, we sort of went with that plan for the next, uh, few years. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, I recorded after more music, more family, and we're going through the whole story. This is going long, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this would be a two parter. Mm. After that, we, um, let's see, 2015, um, we go on and we're, we're doing our routine and we're touring around. Uh, we go to Hawaii a few other times, and we tour around the country probably 10 different times, and life's going good, and then Cassie's diagnosed with breast cancer. Ugh. Uh, life, life was going, to, before the, Cassie was diagnosed with breast cancer, I mean, things were going pretty good. You know, we, we were touring around, we had our homeschool routine, it was still a hustle, but at least we had the family together yeah. and we were getting opportunities and we were writing music. And, uh, in April of 2018, uh, Cassie got diagnosed with, uh, 
uh, breast cancer, uh, BRCA1 triple negative breast cancer, which is a rare aggressive form of breast cancer. And our whole life changed again. You know, everything was like everything that we, the plan that we thought we were going down stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was about like, oh, let's figure this Family. out. Family. Let's figure this out. Yeah. You know, like we didn't have insurance. We didn't, we were, it was hard pressed to find any kind of route for uh, health care. Like uh, we couldn't get approved for Medicaid. Because uh, of pre-existing or? Well, because, because in order to get, you know, Medicaid, like you can't make more than like two or three hundred dollars a month. Like it's it's literally crazy. It's low. You can't make anything. So you know, and like we we didn't make a lot of money. Like we were, you know, we were making any you know thirty forty thousand dollars a year or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so we couldn't get it. You know, even with a family of four. But we didn't know about a lot of things. So we ended up we ended up um, through Doctor Wilkerson. Uh, wife mm-hmm. here in town cat would suggested we call this lady yeah at this cancer institute called Moncrief which is a cancer institute by UT Southwestern mm-hmm. I end up back at UT Southwestern <laughs> tragedy after tragedy I like UT Southwestern they really <laughs> do a good job so Kendra Heath ends up being this angel who just happens to have the golden ticket and the direct line Who's she's one Moncrief is one of two places in Texas that can authorize you for the special emergency breast cancer and cervical Medicaid. Okay. That they don't advertise. Yeah, people know about it, but it's just it it, it sort of was hard to find. Right. It just didn't seem obvious, and I spent hours upon hours on the phone talking to many different young women in cubicles that said there was no option for us. Right. You know, so Kendra Heath, this nurse navigator who actually was a cancer survivor herself, led us in the direction and got us approved for for a cervical breast cancer emergency Medicaid. And we got approved for that. And the great amazing thing about that is that no matter how our financial position changes, she Cassie doesn't lose her coverage. She has her coverage for the life of the cancer. Um, So it was an amazing blessing from God. And so we got that under wraps and then within a month or two, we got on a, um, a a care plan and Cassie started, uh, chemotherapy. She did her chemotherapy before she did her surgery. She did about six, seven months of some of the roughest, toughest chemo. Yeah. Um, the red devil, what they call it, kills a lot of people because it's such a bad dude. But it also, because of the type of cancer Cassie had, it was the only Real, avenue. yeah. Only real avenue to possibly cure this. So now, you take a whole year off for this, right? Yeah, I stop. I stop everything. And the way that I did that, first off, that don't make a lot of sense. And most people would be like, "How are you going to do that?" Well, you know me. Here I am, fearless, right? And I'm just, I'm just that kind of guy where it's like, I'll sell everything I have, and that because what's important it's, is it's me family. being there for Cassie. Yeah. And through the thick and thin and being there for her to take care of the kids. And I've got to do, I've got to homeschool both of them now. She's going to be out of it. So I've got to take responsibility for it all. And I'll sell everything that I can. But by the grace of God, we have our community, Montgomery Moore and uh, Wendy McNeil and all of the, all of you guys that they all pitched together, the Emerson family, and they had a benefit for us. And they raised a bunch of money to help us survive. 
and to help with the the cost of traveling back and forth to Dallas because we were getting healthcare in Dallas and um, it was a, it was amazing. Um, I'm forever in debt, and all of you know who you are, and I love you, and thank you so much for doing that. That's amazing. Ch- changed our life, and it it made me realize that man, you know, we people are good. People are good, and if you need help, ask for it. Well, and you love your community. Your community will love you. Yep. You yep. and, and I don't mean just your friends and your your people that are directly next to you. I mean your community as a whole. Yeah, and people, dude, people are good. Yeah, people came out of the people came people we never met started calling us that were help, trying to help guide us through the cancer system, through the medical medical system. I mean, I had so many, it was, it was like this flock of angels that were all cancer survivors just came on us and they're like, we're going to help you get through this. We've got you. And they didn't know who we were from Adam. They just knew that we were a young couple Yeah, that was in this position. And they came and it was just so amazing. And it made me realize too that that's what I have to do. Yeah, that's what we have to do for people. And 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 if if you're going through something, you know, it's like you it's it's so hard. I can't imagine going through what we went through without our community and without all of the people that reached out and that helped us and that yeah. talked with Cassie and that talked with me. And it's like there's people that that get diagnosed and that don't tell anybody. That's crazy. oh my god, you know, because they're they they don't want the attention. You know, they don't, and I understand all that, but man, for us, it was healing. Yeah. It was healing to have that support and to feel, just just to feel how connected people and how much people cared about us and stuff. And it just, it's, uh, it really taught me about community. I mean, it was a really amazing experience. And here we are 19 months later and Cassie's been through several surgeries chemo radiation and she's on her way to being completely cured well I, I was at one of your shows not recently and i remember you talking about maybe i heard this wrong but you, I, am i wrong that it changed your way of writing again like you you started writing some with cassie yeah. and yeah and taking from this experience that you just had with family yeah and, so and, we brought we brought the whole other thing together right you know again it's, it's like, yeah yeah it was like another level of 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 making something that was two separate worlds one world and it was amazing because to see the transformation in Cassie to now, like, she now understood why I was so excited about creating. Like, right. when, she, when she started creating these little worlds with me and she would write her own song and be so excited about it and then see how that affected people and how that affected herself. Because when you write a song, you create this little invisible world mm-hmm. that is that is um, encoded with emotions and feelings. And it's magical. It's unbelievable the power that that has for yourself right. and for other people. And then you start to realize your duty as a creator. As, and, and like you get... Uh, it's it's just an amazing blessing to be able to have that creative outlet and it i think it's a huge part of her healing because she didn't she really didn't have that before mm-hmm. like this cancer inspired her to face fears and to put it all out there just go do you be mm-hmm. who you are and you go do it and also inspired us to turn our life around as far as our health to take a really good look at the things that we could control mm-hmm. and try some things out, you know, see what works for us. 
we were both overweight. Me, especially, I was 340 pounds. I'm 120 pounds lighter today, 19 months later, all because of Cassie's cancer journey. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you know what I said after we found out, I said, Cassie, we got to look at this as the golden ticket to health. Mm-hmm. This, we have now the inspiration to make sure that we cross our T's and dot our I's and we dig in and we learn about, you know, we, and we, we experiment and we learn about health and we try to do everything that we can to affect this mm-hmm. and that has to do with our food has to do with our thoughts has to do with you know when when cassie has that that feeling of inspiration mm-hmm. that she gets from creating and writing a song that releases there's a biochemical reaction that biochemical reaction affects you know her epigenetics it can affect the cancer yeah. Just that that's the magic of prayer as well when someone believes in something and has that feeling of emotion and it floods your body, that does good things. Yeah. That heals. And so it's like we we got into, uh, there's this really amazing, uh, uh, we got into a bunch of different authors and a bunch of, di- one, one of the doctors, Dr. Walter Longo, with uh, he has a book called The Longevity Diet, and that's how we got into doing intermittent fasting and extended fasting to help fight the cancer and to ease the chemotherapy side effects. And then um, we also got into uh, this neuroscientist, and he has this book called the um, You Are the Placebo. And uh, what is his name? I'm forgetting it right now. Let me see here in my book thing. Um, it's amazing. It's so cool. So like what I was just talking about, about the chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're just now, like science is just now starting to understand epigenetics. And so like I didn't even know what the, what epigenetics was. You know, you hear genetics and you, yeah. think, you think genetic is genetics is the, the building blocks to your life. Right. And it's a set thing. Your genetics are what they are. And that is true. They are what they are. But the way that your genetics can be expressed through epigenetics is... That's where all the millions of variables come in. Mm-hmm. And within one lifetime, within, within just a, 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 a fragment of your life, your genetics can be altered and activated from the biochemical environment that they're in. And so, um, let me see here. Come on. There we go. Where are you at? Joe Dispenza. Okay. So awesome. Joe Dispenza is the author. You are the placebos, the book, and it talks about how these biochemical states in our body can we you can actually, if you can learn to evoke emotions, emotions of healing through, and that's what prayer does as well. Mm-hmm. When you have a when you're really convicted to your prayer, you you see the outcome and you feel the outcome as if it's there, and your body responds to it and then your genetics are actually changed and the building blocks to the way our body responds is changed. And it's such a cool idea. It's such a cool book for anybody that's dealing with any kind of terminal or, or, or um, you know, issue all the time. You know, this book is amazing. Game changer. It's a game changer. And it's, 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 uh, he gives the cool thing about the book is it's, uh, if you're a person of science and you enjoy science and you enjoy someone explaining things mm-hmm. fully versus just, oh, and I'm all about some prayer. 
But I'm even more about some prayer if you tell me how that prayer affects my brain and then how that, what, what, what that thought does, how that goes in and what biochemical reactions there. And then if you start explaining stuff, I really get into it. Huh. And for me, it does even more becomes a God thing. Yeah. It becomes even, I even have more faith and I feel the presence of God even more. It's amazing. You know what I'm saying? How your body digests prayer. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of yeah. like, what happens, what happens in your body yeah. when you pray? Yeah. And something amazing happens. And science is just getting to the point of being able to talk about it. That's cool. You know? It's amazing stuff. So here we are, 19 months later, on our path to being completely cured of cancer. Um, in Cassie's mind, she is cured. Yeah. In my mind as well. The doctors won't tell it, give her the pass for probably another 10 years because of the kind of cancer it is. But here we are. We find ourselves in an amazing new position in our life where we're both healthier than we've ever been. Looking good. Feeling good. I yeah. can do push-ups. You know, I can almost do a pull-up. I mean, how amazing is that? A pull-up. I hadn't been able to do a pull-up since I was 17. Almost. I haven't done it yet. I'm almost there. I'm like half half pull-up. I don't know that I could do a pull-up. But, uh, but here we are, and, and through our new love ship of writing tunes together, we've created all kinds of brand new opportunities. Yeah. And um we're we've I think we're embarking on some of the biggest opportunities of our life. A big one just happened. Yeah. Yeah. We we here in October mm -hmm. um just in passing, uh, we were on our way to Minneapolis and I noticed an Instagram ad that said chart your course. It was a competition by Lincoln. That was all like it was a songwriter competition, and it had a, a very had a very introspective feel about the artist's journey and about integrity within art. And I was really attracted to the marketing, and it looked really cool and had a good ring to it, and it was really just resonating with me. And I I don't know, I haven't entered a contest since America's Got Talent, and I didn't really enter America's Got Talent. I was forced into it. So this was like really one of the first times in my life. I besides for building moving back to Paris where I woke up or I had this like feeling of felt like, a calling a call I had to do it yeah I I knew I looked over at Cassie I said we have to enter this and within 24 hours I had a videographer and a studio booked because we were over in Dallas we weren't at home so it was like all in passing I was like we got to do this and we did it and within eight days we got notified that we were a finalist and what that meant is that we were going to be involved in this competition and they were going to, you know, they were going to come out to Paris and they were going to film some on about our story and about our song. Mm -hmm. And from there, um, it was, it was going to be, um, it was going to be this marketing campaign contest that was going to go up and, uh, crest the night of music's premiere night on the 26th which, you know, I'm not sure what happens on the 26th that's called Music's Premiere Night. Do you know of mm. anything on the 26th? I, I think I, the only thing I could find in the TV guide was the Grammys. <laughs> I'm not saying. I'm not anything. saying. I mean, but. I, they call it Music's Premiere Night. And I was looking in the TV guide, and on the 26th, it's the Grammys. So here we are in a position to where our story is going to be, you know, featured during the broadcast of music's premiere night, possibly the Grammys. And if, you know, if we win this contest, we'll, we'll, 
will end up being a, a Lincoln spokesperson and we'll get all kinds of new opportunities to take our music to a whole other level and we'll, we'll actually uh, we'll win a car as well, the Corsair. And or Corsair, is that how you say it? I don't know. Um, excuse me if I said it wrong, Lincoln. Um, but uh, we're so stoked because you know, like America's Got Talent was it was a cool it was a cool thing, and I I am very grateful for the lessons that I learned and for the exposure and for the people all over the world that it connected me with because yeah. it did. I meet people every tour, brand new faces that are like, man, watched. Every, Every season episode. voted, man, voted, and it like you know it connected me to the world, and I and I am very grateful for that opportunity. Right. But this feels different because this is our story. Truly. Yeah, this is truly our story, and um, just uh, we really know we really know what to do with this and and where to take this. So we're really excited, and uh, you know if if you're listening to this and you want to get involved and be a part of this, you can. Help us win because it's a popular vote. Yeah, it's going to determine who wins. So you can go to chartyourcourse.com. That's chartyourcourse.com, and you can vote. You can vote once a day, um, and help us win. Yeah. So, so I, I have a not a bone to pick, but I'll call it a bone to pick with this. Um, what's really really hard about popularity votes like that is that you come from a small town. So if any of the other contestants come from a large town, yeah. they have a large supported base. Now, I don't think so though. But here's that's the, the way it there, works. there is a difference. No, no, but it, it's hard it's hard it's hard to get a large it's hard to get the attention of a large city. I don't know. People people back their community. People do. And a bigger city with more people have more people that will back it than a smaller city. Maybe in 1980. There is a difference that you... No, I, I <laughs> disagree 100%. People are on their phones, bro. I disagree 100%. <laughs> if, if, if you're from a town that has 200,000 people that live in it, and, and, and we're from a town that's got 30,000 people from it, there's a smaller percentage there. There is. Yeah. There, now, well, you're different because you have been spending... A majority of your life, yeah, like building a fan base, and I get that, but I still want to encourage our community to go out and support. It's we definitely need we definitely need your support. Yes, for sure. It's not you know it's this is not a sure deal. We need your support. We need people to vote, Um, and this is going to be truly. This is truly. It's it's already a life changing situation. And um, it could be so great for us. So we we ask you to check it out. Yes. Check out the contestants and 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 vote vote for who you like the best. Because there's three other contestants. Three other contestants that are that are but, great talents. But vote for Cass. I mean, but there's three other contestants. Totally. Yeah. Uh, but no, I in, in saying that I'm not I'm not trying to be angry with people. But I just really want to encourage them to actually go out. Visit the website. Yep. Check out your song on the website. Yeah, um, and you can check out. They filmed our story as well. And yep. You can sort of see the farm, and you can um, see Cassie's story about you know her cancer journey, and our family's journey here out on the farm, and sort of what we've been through, and how that ties in with the song. Yes. And uh, you know, it's 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 a pretty cool deal. We're we're really stoked. I just now have to figure out. What I'm gonna wear to music's premiere <laughs> to music's premiere night? I don't think my cutoffs and house shoes are gonna. Work. I think a hat. You and I've had multiple yeah, conversations man. about I hats. I mean, th- this song is my hat song. It's dude. And dude, I I literally found the hat 
that I wrote. I found a flat top hat that makes me feel alive. Yes. I found it like a week before I wrote that. Right. And I found it at the Goodwill in Paris. In Vintage, resistall, Tom Landry style hat. I'm jealous of that. It is incredible that I. I mean, I go to the Goodwill all the time. You just don't find that kind no of quality. That is a diamond in in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I th- I really feel like that hat in a vintage shop would have been quite expensive. I do too. You I know? that hat is legit. It Trust is. me, I'm a hat guy. Yeah, man. I mean, if you're listening to this and you know me, I'm a hat guy. <laughs> Um, and I love that hat. It looks good on the you. Old, the old man, he definitely died. You know, because there was two hats, two flat top resistals, and I was like... Did you, you only got, get one, or did you get two of them? I got them? both of them. Okay. Oh, yeah, I got both good. of them. Yeah, one of them Nola wears. It's a brown one, and then I got a gray one, too, and... uh but he had to die, or he wouldn't, or his hats wouldn't. He would never have given up. The, yeah, no. That'd be like me giving up he my hats. That's not happening. Years I or mean, my bow ties. Was, this was an old hat. That's amazing. Um, that's awesome, dude. I'm excited for you. Excited for your family. Um, you know, just just love everything that's going on in your life. Love your love your. We're also doing a music video with you, bro. I didn't know if you. I didn't know if you wanted to bring that up oh, or not. We can, yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about it. Well, I don't want to digest that too much because, um, my listeners, you can have this little sneak peek. We're gonna do a an a separate podcast that dives into ah, okay into that music video that we made with Cass, and it's gonna be a it's basically gonna be us talking about the making of it um uh, so stay tuned for that be looking out for that that's going to be a really fun podcast uh leah's going to jump in with that if y'all are familiar with dead cat that's the company i own with leah emerson she's going to be jumping in (laughs) wow um so yes we did make a a music video to get i also i want to talk about this real quick i've always wanted to make a music video and y'all can hear more about this over on the other podcast but it's been a bucket list dream of mine for a long time. Awesome. And I've had multiple like people confront me about doing it, but no one's ever pulled the trigger. And uh, when Cass contacted us about doing it, I was like, this has got to happen. I don't care what I got to do. I don't care if he's a jerk. We're going to deal with it. No, I knew by that point. <laughs> I had been around you a couple times. I knew by he's that point. He's not so bad. He's not, as, he's not the same not guy. He's not as bad as he was. Yeah, well, I and I knew by your lyrics, man, that you couldn't be the same guy. Because yeah. listen, from listening to your songs, I just knew that guy wouldn't have wrote that song. Appreciate that. Um, trying. So, trying, man. So you filled one of my bucket lists. Well, awesome. I mean, we're not done with the video yet, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's filmed. It's filmed, so we're we're at least halfway there. So, but anyway, uh, long podcast. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, dude. Thank you for having me, and I'm stoked uh, about the future, and yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. Maybe we'll do some more stuff together. I'm sure we will. I'm. I'm. We, me, and Leah are already planning a, a tour where you two travel with us. Of course, you're gonna have to bring your family because. How could I take you away from your family? <laughs> <laughs> I've also had experiences in life where I traveled with someone doing video stuff, and it wasn't nearly as long as you did, but uh, I spent eight months away from them on the road. That's yeah, and we see you. We need like you guys have like a, a trailer on the road where the families, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it have, have to be the whole, have to be the whole, all the tribes. We'll make some like awesome. Some documentary stuff, man. Yeah, dude. Dude, it'd be so good. There's so many options. That's what's great about the creative path and the creative life is that you get to visualize 
anything you want yeah. and go after it. Yeah. And it's all attainable. True. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, I was very nervous for it. I do not know why, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, I thank you for having me, and I hope that the audio turns out well. I do, too. <laughs> I hope that it kept recording. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> I bet it did. So, uh, just sneak peek, everybody. We're in Cass's house, in his studio, recording. So, this is not my studio stuff. This is his studio yeah, stuff. Yeah, so if you don't like the way that it sounds, it's- you can email me at CassHaleyMusic at gmail.com, and I won't reply. <laughs> All right, bud. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I want to give one more big shout out to Toyota of Paris for sponsoring this podcast. These guys are amazing. They just started sponsoring the podcast. I love that they're jumping on board with the podcast team. Uh, They've always supported me, though. They've done a lot of things with me. I've I've made videos with them. They were part of my Paris 360 that I did last year. Um, and they are huge, huge supporters of their community. Toyota of Paris, uh, go check them out. If you have any needs for vehicles, used vehicles, uh, go have a chat with one of their guys. They're all great. They're going to treat you phenomenal. They're on the loop right across the street from Home Depot. You cannot miss them. Um, they're just amazing people. Thank you guys one more time for checking, for sponsoring this podcast. See you guys next week.